If you're a fan of big ideas, debate, and politics, check out our festival partner, Geopolitical Magazine Foreign Policy. A forum for informed debate about global affairs, foreign policy keeps a finger on the pulse of world news and political happenings. Beyond articles that delve behind the headlines via traditional reporting, Foreign Policy has so many other products to offer, ensuring that no matter how you like to engage with eye-opening content, there is a method for you. Check out their free offerings, like Foreign Policy Live, their forum for live journalism, newsletters, and podcasts. And with a subscription, unlock in-depth features and quarterly magazines, including their recently dropped spring edition, All About India. Fans of IAI will love Foreign Policy for more of the mind-expanding, insightful content that they seek. To explore their content, take advantage of an exclusive discount for IAI fans. Subscribe now using promo code LIGHT24 to save 50% and unlock access to everything Foreign Policy has to offer. The Institute of Art and Ideas, articles, videos, and podcasts. Hello and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, the podcast which brings the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. We admire achievers from James Watt to Mandela, Marie Curie to Emmeline Pankhurst, and we school and encourage our children to be similarly focused. This week on Philosophy for Our Times, our speakers ask, what's it all for? Yet many spend their lives waiting for weekends and holidays, and does not play both as sex, drugs and rock and roll, and as a creative and physical endeavour, provide us with the most memorable events in life. So what does this mean? Should we embrace play as the most important activity in life? Abandoning work and achievement as a mug's game? Looking for the answers, we have moral philosopher, winner of the International Spinoza Prize, and author of Why Grow Up, Susan Neiman. Comedian, writer and actor, best known for Ab Fab, French and Saunders, and her debut Neville, Losing It, Helen Lederer, an essayist and novelist and former human rights specialist for the UN, Yana Teller. After listening to the episode, please do head to our website at www.iai.tv for our latest featured episodes and our podcast playlist made for you. Back now to Julian Bagini, who hosts this week's episode. So to begin with, we, we begin by just asking each of the panellists to set out their basic views on this topic with a sort of like slightly provocative question, perhaps, should we just basically give up uh, work as a mugs game and really focus our lives around play? Susan, what do you make of that? I think it's the wrong question. As you... <laughs> you ask a philosopher, that's what you get. Um, I mean, as you know, because I think we met when I was talking about my book, uh, Why Grow Up, mm. as you know, uh, which is, I guess, the reason why I was invited to this particular panel, I am outraged at the way we have given adulthood a bad rap. And I think there's something about the way the question is phrased which suggests actually adulthood is a tired, dull, miserable state of, of being, and we should all go back to childhood. And the interesting thing is no child wants to stay a child, okay? <laughs> Oh, it's really true. Those of, uh, of you who've had them will, will agree. And moreover, when people go on about how awful it is to grow up or to become an adult, the phase that they usually idealize is the phase between about 18 and 28. Look, if, if you had good times in your 20s, power to you. 
But most people I know, once they're out of them, would never choose to repeat them again. It's a terribly hard time of life. You're figuring out who you are and what you want to do with your life. And I really think the whole point of this propaganda that you know the fun and games, the play is over at 30, and after that, it's time to get on to the serious and rather miserable business of living is a way of, since it's just empirically false, I mean, there have even been social psychologists do studies on happiness. There's a happiness curve that people actually get progressively unhappier. It's different for different countries. I think the Swiss are the worst. Um, it takes <laughs> it takes them much longer to go up the curve again than it does some other people. So there's all kinds of empirical evidence that youth is not actually the best time of your life. So the question is, why are we being sold this bill of goods? And I think it's to make us resigned to accepting the world as it is. Let me just say one more thing as a way of answering the official question that was posed about the opposition between work and play. If you talk to a real activist, I've never met Mandela, but I know um, a number of people who've, who've given serious amounts of their lives and gone to jail for some question of justice that they were passionately committed to. They will talk about not sacrifice, but a feeling of freedom and a feeling of deep, deep, uh, I, I'm not sure they'd use the word happiness, but joy at being able to do that. So the weird thing about the way the question was phrased was that you juxtapose you know, someone like um, Mandela or Pankhurst, um, and, and then you talk about sex, drugs, drugs, and rock and roll. Nothing against any of them, by the way, um, although I think rock and roll is actually a lot of work. You ever go to well? Anybody ever seen a Springsteen live? He's amazing, but I mean, he just sweats like crazy after, you know. I mean, as as any serious rock and roll musician worth her or his salt, but to to juxtapose drugs. I mean, you know, I is it legal in England? It's not legal in England. I shouldn't say. Um, but it's legal in several places where I live, and I'm happy to smoke a joint while engaging in either sex or rock and roll. <laughs> you know, no question that it enhances both. But, you know, to contrast those things with, I think you said, creative endeavor, I mean, we, it, it, we're throwing a lot of different, uh, different ideas into a mix where they don't belong, and I think it's important to distinguish yeah. between them. Okay. I didn't write the question, by the way. I know you didn't. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I'm off that hook. No, go. no, you would um, have written it differently, I know. <laughs> um, Helen. Yeah, well, I'm going to have a go at deconstructing the question. I think that's a brilliant start. My understanding of the question was that you had to have either or, that you have a, a work, uh, that you have to replace work with play or um, one or the other. So I would, my position here is, as a comedian, as somebody who was always, well, fat, asthmatic with a hairband, obviously great criteria for being the comedian. <laughs> so I was the funny one in the class. The other fat person wasn't funny, but there were two of us. Um, <laughs> but um, so I've understood how play has fed into my work. So I, I have to be playful 
in order to work at my best. And if you think about the role of you know, court gestures, I actually Googled this, that's the only way I actually access information, unlike my colleagues. Um, that the, the court gesture was obviously there. There was a woman court jester uh, called Jane, by the way, in Mary the First. That's as far as I've Googled. But the <laughs> point is, um, to, uh, it's, it's a leveler of society. Playfulness is a leveler of society to sort of um, prevent dogmatism. So there's that. Then there's a slight gender thing. Men like Rod Stewart can play with his train sets and actually donate money to a museum. I don't know if anyone read that recently when there was a tell disaster broken down trains or something. Anyway, whereas women's play is seen as having to be restorative or improving. So we need to actually get a, a kind of a traditional gender look at um, how play sits in society. Then, because more of us are going to be out of work and more of us <coughs> are freelance, play is very, very essential for our mental stability because of um, being isolated. So I would um, say play is part of work, not to exchange. Okay, great. Thank you. Oh. <laughs> I, think, I think some people agree with you. Uh, um, well, as a fiction writer, I'll start somewhere else um, with a statement from one of my books saying, nothing matters. I've known that for a long time, so it's not worth doing anything. I just realized that. These are the words of a 14-year-old boy who decides to leave school because of what he thinks. And he climbs a plum tree uh, where his friends pass on the way to school and he says things to them like, the earth is 4.6 billion years old and you will live maximum 100. Life really isn't worth the bother. Um, and they set out to prove to him therefore that life has a meaning uh, and a lot of things happen. But to come then back to the question, if absolutely nothing matters, then also neither work nor play matters. And to know whether work or play matters, we need to know what is the real purpose of something. Because if we just do things to waste time, in a way, it doesn't really matter if it's fun or not. Um, we're just wasting time. So if we imagine there is a purpose, and again, people who fight, I think, for something they believe in, and that's actually, no matter whether others believe it or not, whether it's a, you know, religion or human rights, or something people are passionate about, then everything they do to that end makes sense. You know? And therefore also, if you believe that humor is the way to make the world more peaceful and go around because it smooths uh, interactions over in a positive way, then a lot of humor and play makes sense. And it, I think when something makes sense to us, uh, it is always joyful. A tedious thing can be pretty joyful if it makes sense, like taking care of your child. Well, I have a horse, and there are a lot of tedious things to do with taking care of a horse, but I actually enjoy most of them. And so I think this thing of making sense comes in, and then I will also decompose something, so I will take the word play, because I play a lot when I write fiction, but it's towards a certain end. I think it's quite different than if one maybe jumps, bungee jumps, and just want to try it out. Or if you do like you know, futile fun uh, games, but still, if it's for the purpose of your family having a social evening, you know, something else comes into it. So that's why I just think we have to see what is the purpose of the bigger thing yeah. before we can judge what is better than not. 
Okay, well, th there's three very interesting starting points, I have to say. Now, the thing is, I think all of you have been, to, to a certain degree, kind of talking about play as perhaps not being the most important things being associated with youth or not dividing it from work or having to have some eye on some, you know, something just ultimately meaningful and that's the key thing. But I, I wonder whether, you know, there's anything to be said for play just for its own sake, because you talk about what's meaningful, but is, isn't there some purpose or value simply in play, not just as a, a way of recreation, because everyone needs rest. You know, David Hume, as we know, famously said when he got too caught up in his uh, philosophical worries, he would play cards with his friends or something, and then everything would come back to normal. So that's a kind of, you know, it's almost like we need to sleep, we need to eat, we need to play a bit. But is there some actual value in play in itself, not for some grander purpose or not for some purely functional purpose, but because, I don't know, it's, it's an important part of being human. I mean, you're a com comedian. Don't you see some value in play just for its own sake? Um, well, getting into a state, if you think about the whirling dervishes, I always think that they get themselves into a state. I was very envious of that, getting into a state of otherness. And so sometimes vodka can do that as well. Oh, we <laughs> talk, uh, rather whimsically wanting one earlier on. But I think for me being hysterical is a favoured state because it's out of the norm, mm. uh, out of being sensible. And so there is something to be said for a kind of existential sensationalist, if you can have the two together, if, if that's what you're asking. Mm. But, but training people to play, like role play, or in China where they let the children play for two hours and video them and then get them to discuss it, so it's not fake joy. It's actually um, <laughs> enabling people to, to form better, uh, loving, joyful, reflective relationships then play has a function as well, not mm. just uh, for narcissistic pleasure. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I mean, the thing is, in any case also, when children play, that is part of preparing them for adulthood. They learn in every game they have, they learn about hierarchies, powers, and various human mechanisms. And like animals, all kid animals play. And you can think, why do they do that? But it is to learn. You know, a cat tries to catch whatever you throw to it. A grown-up <coughs> won't necessarily do it, but a kitten will, because it's training to catch mice later. And a lot of play, therefore, is purposeful in itself because it's training us for something, even when we do it as adults. And I think the social then just joy is often too upset if we work too hard on something that's mundane or tiring our brain, tiring our systems. We need an outlet. And therefore, it, in a sense, has a purpose also. If, it's, if we only do something for fun, but do it all the time, quite quickly it stops being fun. But if we can only do it you know, one Saturday a month, it's more interesting. Imagine ro riding a roller coaster, and you keep doing it, and you keep doing it, and you keep doing it. I think after three days, you really don't want to ride roller coasters oh anymore. <laughs> I mean, it's a job for some people who try them out. So therefore, I think it's, it's a question yeah, of this balancing. Fun just for the sake of fun. I actually don't think it exists. Right, right okay, it <laughs> doesn't exist. Interesting. Oh, gosh, I don't think that's true. I, I was thinking as you were talking that it was a sort of parlor game that uh, philosophers during the Enlightenment played by asking themselves, I mean, I'm slightly, I'm not, they didn't actually sit down and play it together. They wrote about the question, would you live your life over if you had a chance? And um, 
as far as I know, there was never a moment when they all, Leibniz and Hume, and, oh, they weren't living in the same, quite the same time, but I like to think of it as something that people return to as a question in, in throughout the 18th century. Most of them, by the way, said no. But Leibniz said yes, as long as there was variation. Okay, so you know, I think you're right about that. I think you're also right that until children go to school, they absolutely don't distinguish between work and play. Okay, everything they do is work, and everything they do is play. And you know, if you if you watch them, you know, first of all, they like imitating adults who are actually working, um, and it's all it's all the same thing until they hit school. And so I think, I mean, I don't know if you want to go this way, Julian, but I think we do need to a little bit take the, the question seriously by saying that four of us are uh, extraordinarily privileged because we've managed to find ways to pay the rent by doing things that we choose to do. And the vast majority of humankind at this point in time cannot. Um, so for us to talk about partly being in this childhood state of work and play flowing into one another, of, of course it's the case that we probably spend more time on our work um, because we enjoy it, because it's something that we choose to do than a normal nine to five person would do, and so that's, you know, that's that, but we're still very privileged. Yeah, because when you say work and play, I mean, to me, as kids do before school, it does sound like the job description of a fiction writer. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You're a philosopher <laughs> to some degree and a comedian. So. I mean, I, you know, we're... Yeah, and then, yeah, the table football that you have in the corner of offices, it's well-paid creative professions. It's not like in the canteen at the Amazon warehouse where people can just, you know, have a game of football whenever they want, right? It, it, you, you, are, right. you are right about that. But one thing I think we've got to come back to, I'll I, I plant this in your head and we'll come back to it later. Um, in a sense, you know, we're talking about play as if we know what it means, and I suppose it could mean different things. I'll be quite interested to hear from all of you later what for you you think you know, play in its best sense actually, <laughs> actually is. But think about that for the moment. Um, but uh, for the moment, sticking with this sort of slightly crude dichotomy between work and play, you know, there, there seems to be, again, this... All of you, one way or another, I think, are suggesting that you know, play, it has its role, it can be restorative, it's useful when you're a child for learning, but you know, it's not really the real source of meaning. So is, is the real source of meaning and value, is it then work? Is it that what's normally put is the opposite, work? Or is there a danger there that we sort of like fetishize work, Protestant work ethic, et cetera, et cetera? Is, is, so how much is, should we see work as a source of meaning in our lives if we don't see it in play? Yeah, Susan, you look like oh, ready to come yes. Well, Hannah Arendt, but also Marx and a few other, you know, pretty heavy lifters argued that it is work that makes us human, okay? And I think there's something in that. I think the idea of leaving something in the world as thanks for the gift of having lived in it is a genuine human need. I really do. This is not to say, I mean, I think there's value in play too. If you like what play does, I mean, let's think about playing music or singing or something like that. If you're not a professional, you don't do it very well, you just occasionally do it for the sheer joy of it. 
that's also, it seems to me, a much more receptive way of, of taking in the world and, and being grateful. And then you want to give something back through work. Once again, that's if you're lucky. And it doesn't, you know, there are, um, there are all kinds of ways to use work, or there are all kinds of work that gives back to the world. But in uh, the late capitalist uh, neoliberal system that we live in, an awful lot of the way we spend mm. our days does not actually fulfill that. Do you want to hear more from the world's leading thinkers? If the answer to that question is yes, subscribe to IAI.TV for unlimited access to thousands of debates, talks, articles, academy courses and live events. Are you bored of the surface-level news, politics, sports and entertainment coverage on your newsfeed? Go deeper, get the philosophy behind the news and get the latest big ideas from the world's leading thinkers on subjects at the core of the human condition, life, the universe and everything in between. It's free for the first month and there's no commitment to pay, so subscribe now to understand the world beyond the surface level. I mean, it seems to me one of the problems with, with setting up the debate this way is if we say work and play, I think we're assuming that work is what we get paid to do and play is, right. is what we do when, for its own sake. And if you're lucky, you can combine those, like we've said. Like if you're lucky, you can earn your money doing something that's playful. But actually, maybe the key thing isn't work so much. It's like it's effort, right? It's effort. And effort can go into work. It can also go into things which aren't employment, etc. And it seems to me that perhaps, you know, one thing that's coming through here is, is the things that require some kind of application or giving back to the world that are the reward. That's not necessarily the same as employment, is it, or work? A absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Um, what do you think about the work um, issue? Yeah, yeah I, th I think that it's right to, to, yeah, to divide differently and talk about what when people have um, yeah, more mundane jobs, jobs that they don't have a passion for. Because work has to give meaning to be joyful. And I think we all know the anecdote about the bricklayer. And one bricklayer will be asked, you know, what are you doing? And say, well, I'm laying bricks. And the next one will be asked, and he's saying, I'm building a cathedral, because he's part of building that cathedral that he won't see in his lifetime, the end of, or the next generation. It'll take 200 years. But for him, it's meaningful to lay bricks because he's building a cathedral. For the other one, he's just laying bricks. It gives no meaning and therefore no joy. I think joy and meaning are combined. And so much of our work in the industrialized and modern world is mundane. And, you know, imagine if you're in a factory work or also a lot of the abstract world that people do as, you know, maybe case workers in an administration is for them personally meaningless. And they have no particular passion for it except maybe to satisfy some boss, but, you know, uh, it's another level. And I think, therefore, it becomes more important to have find reason by saying, okay, I need to do these things that I don't like to do because I earn money, then to do something I like to do. And that's where then the division between play and work comes in, which I think in an original, or as you can say, original human outset in a more primitive lifestyle where you're closer to um, the earth, it doesn't come in because everything you do have meaning because it's what you plant so you can uh, grow something that you will eat later. Um, so it's all part again of the child's way of, of living. But when you separate out our different activities as strongly as we do in this modern world and work therefore is abstract for, for
for your living. Yeah, then I think we, we differentiate more. We need then more, more drugs, more fun, more play, the more <laughs> mundane our work time is. Is it about the mundanity, or, or is it partly to do with you know, how it's kind of conceived? And that's partly how society sees it. So I think, for example, it's very difficult for some people to get satisfaction for some jobs because society looks down on them. I mean, I always hate the phrase Mac job, for example, because, you know, actually I've known people who worked in McDonald's and it's, it's not the best job in the world, but a lot of them have much preferred it to other jobs they've had. And, you know, also the thing about part of the meaning is, is you know, particularly if you have a family, it's providing for your family. But so even the most mundane job has meaning. But if, are we so it's a dignity and respect we give uh, to it. But I, on, I, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I mean, is that a bit of an assumptive position that, um, that uh, I mean, society has to work. I mean, who's going to do the sewers? Uh, or if you've got a doctor saying, sorry, I'm off on my play therapy, you know, and you're dying. So uh, everyone has, t uh, we, a society needs workers, otherwise we don't have a society. And I think it's, um, I'd quite like to know what Mark's thought about that, because I don't know. Um, is uh, I think we're still uh, embracing a kind of very privileged position. Um, talk, uh, talking about some people can get meaning I mean, would the person who works in a sewer find it meaningful, or would they just go, this is the job, and I'm getting paid for it, and I have a family to support? Well, that's an interesting yeah. question. Sorry, there was a little evidence there. I mean, I remember seeing a very good documentary on um, all sorts of people who worked at different services around uh, the council or something, and the refuse workers talked about, you know, they, they could frame their job as, as something that's pride in, we keep this city clean, you know. Um, so it, in this, it, I, I do think a lot depends on how things are framed and, and the possibility of framing things positively sometimes depends a little bit on society's attitude towards it. And I don't know, but sorry, Susan, what are coming? I think that's tricky. Um, I've, uh, I've waitressed, I've worked in fast food uh, joints and I think saying, you know, the meaning is you're paying your rent or you're paying your family's rent. It's, the meaning isn't intrinsic. I mean, especially if you're, selling crappy food, I mean, face it, right? Um, and even if you're s simply serving better food, it can, be, it can be problematic. I mean, on the other hand, I have seen uh, construction workers who weren't building cathedrals, but took enormous pride in fixing up a, a house the way it ought to be. And you can tell in an instant the difference between that and, and others. I mean, we need to be thinking about the future given what people talk about um, automation and the number of jobs that we are not going to need uh, in a fairly short period of time. And the number of people who are given work and who feel, there's a, a new book out, I think, by, by David Graeber called Meaningless Work or something yeah. like that. You know, the number of people who actually feel that their jobs are meaningless is something that needs to be taken seriously. And I don't think it can be prettified by, uh, I mean, I think it's almost condescending to pat people on the head and say, you know, um, you're having meaning. Now, if you live in a town, particularly if you live in a nice-ish, small-ish town, you can certainly take pride in keeping it clean and in that being your job. But once again, we're going, we're talking about going back to different structures. I wonder what somebody in the middle of London or Berlin or New York um, would say 
except after there's a garbage strike. And of course, when there's a garbage strike, everybody suddenly misses the sanitation workers. <laughs> but, but also, the people who are unemployed, they don't tend to say, okay, now I can go and play and have fun all day. Right. Somehow, you know, as meaningless as work can be, the one thing that seems certain, at least as we have structured our society, is that being out of work is even more meaningless. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's interesting as well. I mean, because I mean, again, the assumptions behind these things are quite complicated. There is this idea of like you have to be economically productive to be valuable. I know a lot of people, for example, who you ask them what they do, and people always feel that's a question about how you earn your living, right? And if someone, for example, is an artist but don't earn a living from their art, or a musician who doesn't earn their their their, their living from being a musician, they kind of don't feel able to say that's what I do. You know, that that, that they, they they have to sort of relegate it to some kind, kind of hobby. So the things of things being economically productive is interesting. But also going back to that thing about th whether things can be intrinsically rewarding. I mean, it may be a bit of romanticism, but there is that sort of Zen Buddhist attitude that there's no distinction between higher and lower tasks. Every task can be approached with its own seriousness. You know. Are you Buddhist? I'm, I'm, I'm not, but I, 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 I cherry pick the things I like. Um, <laughs> I, as let's face it, most of us do. Don't pretend to me you're Buddhist. No, no, no. of course not. I just, I just, uh, Buddhism has always struck me as particularly hard to get in the mindset of there's no distinction between higher and, and lower. And I, I just, uh, maybe if the, it, other people can do it, more power to them. Well, listen, I want, I mean, the final sort of like strand for us is, I mean, there's this idea of like, it was proposed that one of the topics of the discussion was, you know, whether or not we could kind of integrate work and play. But I think a lot of what we said already is really kind of suggesting there's something perhaps privileged about the very idea of that, that a lot of people just simply don't have that choice, et cetera, et cetera. But going back to what I, the, the, the idea I planted earlier, I'd like to know from each of you, what for you, what do you think is the, the best form of play and the best way of incorporating it into our lives? And I, I guess, you know, it may not be a one-size-fits-all answer because maybe it depends how you earn a living. But anyway, anyone got some thoughts on that, Yana? Um, yeah, again, I want to start a little bit different. What is it that makes us happy? It's generally when we feel very much alive. When do we feel very much alive? It's when we use our senses, our emotions, our intellect, you know, to its highest possibility generally. Maybe that's why singing, even if you're an amateur, makes people who like singing feel, feel good. And what is the meaning of life? It's at least to live it, whatever else we might disagree on, but is to live it to its fullest. We aren't alive just because other people's eyes are on us, even though Facebook and others are trying to tell us that for the moment. We are alive when our eyes see something, when we feel something, when we smell, hear something, when we do something. And that's part of, I think, also why, why play is fun. Why is it wonderful to play football, even if you're a total amateur and you play with your kids in the garden? You do something, you're alive. And again, a lot of jobs that are repetitive, that don't give a direct meaning and people don't have a passion for, it's also part of they don't give people a sense of being alive. And I think what gives us that sense is what we feel is play, is what we feel is fun. And um, in different ways, and it'll differ for each individual. I love to be on my horse in the forest and riding full gallop. I can't be happier. But for a jockey, that's a job. You know, so, and for some other people, it would be the worst 
thing ever. Uh, and for everybody, I think it'll be something different. Yeah, I mean, I think Jan is absolutely right to bring up the idea of feeling alive. And I think we all know what that means, um, that actually we spend too many hours of our days not feeling alive. Um, on the other hand, I don't think that's what play is about. E I mean, I don't think that's one a, a way to define play, because I often feel most alive when I'm working. Uh, so I. You know, I, I, I was actually just thinking about, I, I run an institute, and um, I, I, there's an accountant, of course. Um, I think my accountant really feels alive when she's, you know, doing these numbers that I would burst into tears after a couple of hours of, you know? So, so I, I mean, I think, again, this feeling, uh, you mentioned the feeling uh, being purposeful. And it's interesting because I think you need to take, you need to distinguish being purposeful and feeling alive because they're not the same thing. I mean, play right. is yeah, particularly no, you're right about not that. purposeful, you know? So, I mean, I, you asked what the, the, the best forms of play are. I agree that they're different for people, but I think most people can cotton on to some version of uh, sex, drugs, and rock and roll if it's really great sex, you know. You uh, refer to that quite a lot. It's yeah. yeah. obviously a very good benchmark <laughs> to you, Susan. Rock and roll, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, <laughs> you know. I mean, uh, music is really important, I think. Right. Um, I, I, I think there's something about just the sheer purposelessness of music. But music makes us feel. So that's, again, back mm. to the feeling alive thing. You have to work hard. I'm, I'm jumping in here. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, you have to. I. I get meaning from work, I, uh, I, I'm um, and it's speculative and it's not paid, but I'm working. So mm. I, again, I sort of fall into another category, maybe like the artist who's embarrassed to say they're an artist because they're not, you know, getting the trade-off isn't financial mm. and somehow they have to live and I don't know what they do to live. Um, you talked about happiness and feeling alive. <sighs> I think happiness is something that I don't expect, I don't aspire to at all. Happiness is the absence of anxiety. Mm. Um, because I have above average anxiety, I've been told, <laughs> like I'm supposed to be pleased. Um, <laughs> and um, and uh, I think, uh, so I wouldn't aim for happiness. Uh, I get for, uh, work fulfillment um, is the close, like if I do something easy, I can write something very quickly that's easy, there's, I've just done it. But if I teach, which I find really difficult, I get much more fulfilled from that. So one of your questions is, you know, the harder you work, um, is it more meaningful? I think it is. And happiness, I just put over there. Yeah, yeah. Okay. But, but I agree in that way. The happiness is not the goal, but why do we play? It's because it gives us a feeling of joy, or we wouldn't play, because exactly contrary to work, we have a choice whether to play or not. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, I, I'll, just, yeah. I'll just throw in one, one other side of play, though, which I think that, you know, we, we talk about play as essentially sort of leisure activity, but there's another kind of playfulness we haven't talked about a lot, which is. The kind of playfulness you might do as a writer, as a as a philosopher, maybe, but also as a, any a craftsperson, for example, as well, which is that sense of that play where you 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 basically open yourself up to possibilities, you experiment. We talk about playing with ideas and stuff, and in a way, without worrying whether or not it's going to produce anything good. So yes, there's, there's a suspension of purpose, isn't there? 
but then it's only because we sometimes suspend our purpose that we sometimes then, through play, alight upon something which turns out to be extremely valuable. Maybe that's a very specific form of playfulness, and maybe that's just an, a complication we don't need at I'm this stage. Do you think that craftspeople who really care about whether it's going to be good or, or don't care whether it's going to be I know, good but or not? Th th but they might experiment a bit along the way. They might, yeah. you know, they, they do that. They know what's good and everything, but they say, I, I want to try this, you know, and, and in a way they're, they're playing, they're, they're, you know what I mean? Experimenting. I mean, play may not be the, the ideal word there. Certainly experiment we'd use in other kind of uh, experimental creativity. Anyway, listen, thank you for coming. Could just thank our three speakers. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Philosophy for Our Times. The podcast was brought to you by the Institute of Art and Ideas. It was hosted by me, Anna Carey, and our guests this week were Helen Lederer, Jana Teller, and Susan Neiman. If you want more help looking for the meaning of life, why not give a listen to episode 111, A Life Worth Living, or episode 75, in which philosopher Mark Rowlands asked this very question, in what is the meaning of life? Please do subscribe, give us a rating on iTunes, and tell anyone you know that might be interested in the podcast. And of course, tune in next week for more debates and talks from the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas.